Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, I'm Natasha Mirosh, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. My guest today is Jade Miles, regenerative farmer, author, strategist, advocate and CEO of The Sustainable Table, which, among other things, looks for solutions to the climate crisis and the social and environmental problems of our farming, food and fibre systems. Today we're going to talk about what exactly is wrong with the way we produce food and how we as consumers can best support producers And we're also going to learn the meaning of a word that's new to me, future steading. Jade, welcome to Extra Virgin. Thank you for making the time to speak to me today. My pleasure. Lovely to be here. Jade, it's a big question, but what is wrong with our food system? Uh, It is a huge question. Mm. Long supply chains, disconnected consumers, input-addicted farming practices, excess waste and essentially a model that leaves the farmers as price takers and not price makers, which means that those who have land stewardship at their fingertips aren't in a position to nurture and nourish the foundation of all of it in a way that is through cost. Why are we only just hearing about this now? What's what's prompted us to start thinking about this and making these realisations? Or is it something that's been going on in the background for a long time that just hasn't come to public attention? Um, I think we've been, the narrative, mainstream narrative has been dominated by endless growth, which has meant that, you know, small scale family owned farming operations have been told for a really long time to get big or get out and that the whole yield paradigm that dominates outcome has been the predominant message that you know farmers have had to align with because we operate within an extractive system that means the baseline foundation our earth hasn't been included in any of the calculations when we think about the final price point and so the true cost of food has never been truly acknowledged and when that starts to push back, and it is, we either become more input addicted and then the cost of of inputs is prohibitive, and it is at the moment because we're looking at some pretty strong global pressures, or we squeeze someone along the chain, and that tends not to be consumers because the, the monopoly held by the major two supermarkets who predominantly do most of the buying in this country of our food won't push that onto consumers. So the person that ends up carrying that shortfall is the farmer. So it's not new. It's definitely not new. There's There's been, you know, people who've been looking at alternative farming practices and smaller scale farming practices for a really long time. But when you put that alongside someone who's looking at a massively large scale setup, you, you just don't have scale equality. And so the, the cost of food is not necessarily incorporated in the same way when you look at something that's been mass produced in a commodity market as one that's been produced in a smaller scale 
community-led or family-owned farm environment. And the really, really long supply chains are what makes us so fragile. I guess, you know, to answer directly your question of why is this becoming more known and understood now, I guess COVID really made it pretty blatantly clear that food security and food sovereignty was something that we have taken for granted. We just assume that food will be on the shelf and we'll be able to have whatever we want whenever we want it at the price we're willing to pay. And the reality is that that's not true. If we have supply chain disruptions, which come about for all sorts of reasons, it might be trade relations, it might be political, it might be, you know, environmental, you know, climate impact, whatever it might be, we don't have access to the food that we want when we want it at the price we're willing to pay. And so we are disconnected from our food because we've had relatively easy access to an abundance of it. And it wasn't very long ago that, you know, pre-industrial age that that the vast majority of us were growing the vast majority of our food. And if we weren't growing it ourselves, we were swapping it with other members in our community who were. We ate seasonally, we ate locally, we ate fresh, and we knew what to do with it from seed to plate. And now we don't have those skills. Mm. And we have, with that disconnection, comes a lack of reverence and a lack of celebration of the people who actually put the food there in the first place. And so we need to rebuild that reverence and celebration and and connection. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a couple of questions around what you've just said. You talk about us not paying the true value for food. There are many people out there who would say that food in Australia is very expensive as it is. So how do we get around that? And my other question is, can you explain to me and to the listeners what a typical Australian farmer's life is? What is the process from growing to get it to market that is making it so difficult for them? Well, the first one, the true cost of food isn't being acknowledged and that's because the true cost of the to the impact of our earth isn't being considered. And so we have biological degradation and ecological degradation that is happening at a rate of knots that we can debate all we like about the cost of the end product, but the reality is that without ecological health, we actually don't have that foundation to continue to produce food at the rate that we need it. 50% of Australia's food is wasted. And so maybe it's not the actual production in all cases, but often it's the way in which we distribute it and the way we connect with it. And I get it that the cost of living is rising and it's becoming abundantly clear for everybody that's in this sphere that, or not even in this sphere, but all of us, that we're going to have to to rationalise where we put our, our money and food's pretty foundational. I would think that, you know, for those of us that don't earn as much as others, that's not going to get easier. And I don't have the answer to that. I don't know what that needs to look like in mm. the future. I know that when I had not a dime to rub together, my dad's response to a call for help was if you've got some seeds and you've got walking shoes you'd best walk into town you'd best buy yourself some seeds and you'd best get growing and at the time I felt pretty short-changed by it but what he really meant to say was you need to connect with the things that matter and what matters is your ability to feed your family and if you haven't got any money and you think you can't feed your family then you better grow some food and so you know we didn't own our own place at that point and I was literally buying food in the back of boxes and his point was clear and it it made a point not everybody is even in a position to be able to do that but you know we're only as strong as the communities that we live in and so if someone has more than enough and someone doesn't have enough then actually we need to find it within ourselves to reach pretty deep 
into our culture and into our sense of generosity and into our sense of community and find ways to to share and connect. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it looks like long term, but I do know that it's pretty foundational. The other part of the question about how do we farm in Australia, I always assumed that it was a fairly responsible way to farm compared to somewhere like America where it's very industrialised, but obviously that's that's not right. We're industrialised too. No, look, we're largely dominated by the export industry and so we're heavily subsidised to push into export. We're heavily subsidised to push into ag tech and there is bonus for those that are higher yielding in their output and that has nothing to do with your ecological support as it's all to do with what you can actually produce and put on the truck at the end of the day. So, no, look, we're pretty... we're pretty large scale as well and becoming more large scale by the day. Different sectors are different. Mm. You know, small scale market gardening that tends to push through distribution channels like farmers markets or local food co-ops or CSA boxes are certainly not in the same bag as say a large scale wheat producer or you know, cane grower or dairy farmer, you know, all the sectors are completely different. And and what it looks like is completely different depending on what sector you play in, what geography you're in you know, what sort of government support or subsidy support is on offer. There is no one-size-fits-all farm solution and there is no one-size-fits-all sort of day-to-day. But, you know, there wouldn't be a farmer in Australia that isn't doing their absolute darndest to find a way to make this work. And they know that as the land stewards of the greatest swathe of our countryside, that they really, the buck stops with them. Their ability to bring practice change is really where the greatest opportunity Mm. for ecological damage and climate adaptation and resilience sits and they know it. Mm. You know, there's very few farmers who aren't so deeply connected to their land that they're out of tune with that. But what they do with their land remains to be seen. We all have completely different practices because Mm. we have completely different values. What about though, you talked about the supply chain, what about those farmers whose produce does stay in the country and what influence does the the end provider, the supermarket for example, have on their farming practices? Well, to catch 22 because they can demand certain farming practices but equally they need to be able to then provide a financial return that equates to the ability to undertake those farming practices. And so that's not always at play. And so it's a difficult situation because, you know, you get people who are caught in this debt cycle where they've taken out loans to to borrow for growth and then they've got no ability to actually repay it because they're not the price maker, they're a complete price taker and their distribution chain is not values aligned and so they are then not in a position to make practice change. And so it's a a really complicated and unforgiving cycle that has the potential to break so many farmers. And so for those who have stepped out of that debt cycle and have consolidated and have found a way to shorten their supply chain and, and find values alignment across the distribution chain it is liberating but it's quite a different paradigm and it's quite a different model and so that looks quite different often it's shorter often the negotiating table um, isn't a one-size-fits-all and so there's no blanket rule there's no blanket contract 
it's a, a one-on-one negotiation scenario and often there's a much deeper connection and understanding between the person that's growing the food and the person that's going to eat the food and that changes it completely. Mm. So Jade, you are the CEO of the Sustainable Table which we're going to talk about in, in a bit but can you tell me what's got you to this point? Why are you so passionate about these issues? I grew up as a permi kid so I grew up with two parents who predominantly grew the majority of their food and what we didn't grow we swapped with others and other those other family or other kind of community members. We sort of went without if we couldn't access it through those means and so I've always really understood where my food comes from and what it looks like to live and exist seasonally. When I was in my early 20s, my husband and I, he was not my husband then, but he is now, we moved to the Stanley Plateau, which is in northeast Victoria, not far from Beechworth. And we were surrounded by family-owned, small-scale family-owned cherry, apple, pear and chestnut growers. And even in the first couple of years that we were here, we had trees getting pushed out around us almost seasonally and we started to ask the question what's going on and the the standard response regardless of who we asked was that there's no money in it there's no succession plan available to them and you work like a dog with no reward and so there's very little reason to keep the trees in the ground despite them having been there for multi-generations and at the peak of their production what we're better off doing is pushing it out and selling it to a lifestyler who'll pay me twice as much than as a going concern and so that really you know, it was visceral, it was real. And we saw the heartbreak within multi-generational orcharding families. We saw the reality of what they were saying when the real estate boards went up at prices that were completely unfeasible for high-scale agricultural production. And it really made us start to question the system, the whole system. And we spent a bit of time in the States. We went to Vermont, which is number one on the Locavore Index in America. And if Victoria were to be scaled in the same way we would sit just below Florida which is at about state 48 and that's largely because of our export domination but the reason we went there was because not only because they're number one on the locavore index which means you have the ability to access locally produced food but they have a statewide local food strategy that has a 25 goal agenda and it's really quite magnificent in the way that it's engaged with community to understand what the bottom up needs are so that top down solutions can then be provided. So we had a really solid look at what that looked like. We bought a whole heap of ideas and concepts back. There are farmers markets everywhere. There are local vision models through CSA and through, you know, food swapping and abundant swaps and co-ops in every little town, even if it doesn't look like a town, they were just everywhere. So we brought a lot of those different ideas back and we started the Beechworth Food Co-op. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is one of the hardest things we've ever done. One of the most rewarding things we've ever done, but certainly not a walk in the park. It's really complicated dealing with humans and it's amazing, <laughs> but it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of compromise and it takes a relentless amount of energy and a, and a huge amount of, of work. And so we've got a really solid understanding of what it takes and looks like to create local food systems. And that's not an easy ask or task by any stretch and we're seeing a bit of a crisis happen in our local food systems right across Australia at the moment because we've had a a real whiplash shift post-COVID with people going back to convenience and cost as opposed to sort of walking walking the talk where their values are concerned. But anyway, we started the Beechworth Food Co-op 
we were really heavily involved in developing a local food strategy in this particular region and also the creation of a local food policy. And really that opened the door to a whole lot of conversation. And it was incredible to do it. And it felt really sort of game changing in many ways, but actually it didn't feel tangible still. It still felt felt a bit esoteric. Mm. And so we had known for a really long time that we would want to farm. We wanted to farm, but we didn't quite know what that looked like. We did another trip to the States to have a look at what small scale family owned orcharding businesses looked like. And what we discovered was that diversity was the key. And even if it was tiny, you really needed to understand what the players at the table, so in this case, it's my husband and I, what our skill sets were and what we could bring to the table in terms of diversifying the offering. So the farm that we're on now, Black Barn Farm, is an apple, pear and berry orchard and grove and we're open for UPIC and we run a whole lot of workshops and schools programs and we also homestead or I call it future steading which mm. is the name of my podcast and my book. What, what is future steading? It's living like tomorrow matters. It's about existing in a home-based way from wherever you are no matter whether you're in the city or whether you're in the bush and it's about doing things that are small, practical, joyful, connected to your local community, celebration of slow and really, it's about taking some of these bigger sort of systems concepts and removing the academia of it or the intellectualization of it and making it really accessible so that everybody feels like they can contribute mm. to change. Because I think unless you're wealthy and unless you're really embedded in this world, it can feel a bit daunting. Mm. But there's so many people that want to contribute and want to bring change, I get the point of it and I don't know if you've seen the podcast but the pod you know I, I've done 125 episodes just talking to people about how they live like tomorrow matters and some of them are naturopaths and some of them are weed foragers some of them are permaculture educators some of them are regenerative farmers you know really some of them have started movements like the sovereignty alliance broad reaching range of interviews that have been done but all of them can distill down to really simple ways to make a difference mm -hmm. and then the book mm. the book is sort of the black barn farm version of all of those things so it's what we've done and so i've broken that up into six different growing seasons and there's things that you can do for feasting growing nourishing creating and ritual we talk about lots of ritual across the year to sort of rebuild revenants and intention and connection to place and is that relevant for people who might live in the city as well completely yep yeah yeah there's now a few disturbing movements in just about every capital city there's sort of cluster groups and facebook pages and you know regular gatherings of people that are fermenting and baking and seed swapping mm -hmm. and that means we grow the vast majority of our own food as well and, and pickle and preserve wherever we can and I opened up a huge network, a whole different network from the one that we had had in the decade or two prior to the, the life that we're living now. And we really started to be surrounded by some pretty incredible thinkers that were brave and courageous enough to imagine what a localised food system where food sovereignty was, was viable could actually look like. So this is where we've ended up. To say your Instagram makes it look just so idyllic. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's very mucky. <laughs> but it looks amazing. I think the, the image is my, I try to be really brutally honest with my words. I try to be, 
make it not quite so bucolic and romantic mm. because it's bloody hard work is <laughs> the truth of it. I'm sure. <laughs> now, can you please explain what Sustainable Table is? Oh, the organisation has been on the ground for 13 years, but it began as a consumer education body, really, where it, it really took consumers to a place where they could understand what it meant to eat ethically. And that was really necessary back then. But, you know, the evolution of this whole local food system has meant that that's not as vital anymore because there's a lot of places where you can find information about ethical eating. But, you know, like a lot of businesses with the onset of COVID, it shut quite a lot of the sustainable table initiatives down like farmers markets and, you know, in-person gatherings. And, it made it really abundantly clear that we needed to find a way to actually look at this systemically, not just looking at things from consumer to, and consumers and eaters to farmers, but to look at actually what the system, the problems within the system were. And the difficulty with that was that there wasn't visibility, there wasn't readily known funding, and we didn't really know who was where doing what because there's been no mapping, there's been no sort of national gathering of regen farmers there's a whole lot of amazing initiatives out there but it's relatively in its infancy Mm -hmm. and that I guess kind of speaks to the question you asked earlier that you know why have we only just heard about this well we we haven't it's been going on for a couple of decades but it's somewhat disparate not intentionally but just because it, it hasn't had the impetus to push harder or faster and and while we've got a really solid industrial food system filling the gap you know there hasn't been a mainstream push towards this. But Sustainable Table was hearing very loudly and clearly through an initiative that had been on the ground for four years called Ripe for Change, which was a a small-scale community grant initiative that was about understanding the place-based needs of the Mornington Peninsula region in Victoria. And through, you know, relatively speaking, small amounts of money, the change was at magnitude and it made us realise that with focused, concerted, really responsive, bottom-up initiatives being enabled, you could genuinely change systems in region. And so the learnings that we took from that were placed alongside a piece of research that Tanya Massey undertook for Sustainable Table in 2000, maybe 2001, called the Blueprint for Impact. And that was a body of research that was really looking at the impact that agricultural production was having on the reef in in Queensland and what sorts of initiatives were floating around that could potentially change this rapidly. And so by the time we put those two initiatives together, what we realised was that there was real opportunity for change to be applied and systemic change to become a reality. But we needed funding to do that. And simultaneously to all of this learning happening, we were also in the position where some of our philanthropic funders were saying to us, We've got money, we've got interest in putting money into some of these these change initiatives, but we don't know the language, we don't know the lay of the land, we don't have the trust of the farmers. What is it that we need to be enabling or funding in order to bring rapid change? And so we realised that we had a problem in one hand and a solution in the other, and if we combined the two, we would actually then be in a position to say, as leaders of this sector and with really long trusted relationships in place, we feel confident that we can take the right players to the right funders and sometimes co-create, but not always, that will genuinely bring systemic change to our food system here in Australia. And so the last two years, 
We've worked very closely with a number of key funders, but a rapidly growing pool of more funders to fund projects right across the country. And so we have two or 300 projects that we've identified. We've got 60 that are sitting in the clutch of our hand, ready to go. And we've got probably another 10 or 15 concepts that are ready for co-creation to sit down with values aligned funders and farmers to, to work out what that looks like. We don't have all the answers. We don't have, we certainly don't have the mud map, but what we have is an understanding that if we can align values and if we can build relationships and if we can ensure that trust is at play and that the power paradigm sitting around the table is balanced and even, we can probably co-create solutions that will enable change and give everybody the support that's needed. Can you give me some examples of some actual projects that Sustainable Table has funded or is looking to fund? I can. So over the last two years, we have funded about 15 projects at varying scales. So some of them are quite small scale, but some of them are not so small scale. You know, there's a really small one out of Mildura and it's to purchase permanent water. It was literally a $10,000 contribution. But with that, they were able to, to secure permanent water rights to an amount of water that would enable community that's farming up there that feeds into the Out of the Box initiative and enables a Burundian community to bring their known skills from where they're from to these somewhat desolate countrysides, the countryside of Mildura. Another incredible initiative is the Ori Co-op and they are the Organic Regenerative Investment Cooperative. They have their finger in a lot of pies, but this one particular project was about finding ways to collaborate or bring together a whole range of grain producers in the Riverina. And then actually there was a second part to the project that did exactly the same thing in the WA wheat belt. And it was about getting organic produced, so certified organic farmers to come together to find a way to create alternative grain crops, understand what those grain crops, what the viability would be on them and um work out whether there would be paths to market for them. The problem that they were facing was that sometimes if they wanted to to undertake an alternative crop, they then wouldn't be able to find a distributor or a processor that was able to manage the smaller scale and guarantee the organic certification. And so essentially that means that there isn't a strong enough processing or distribution system in place that allows those organic growers the confidence to continue with that alternative growing methodology and so they stick with the same grains and they they don't alternate which doesn't provide diversity for their ecosystem and for a whole lot of reasons doesn't give opportunity for consumers to experience Australian grown organically certified grains that are alternatives like lupin example. And so that was a project that that actually is a massive project and has potential to be multi, multi-millions of dollars worth of funding. But all we did was kick it off, really, and they have an incredible team filled to the brim with gusto and gumption to just have a go at something that they know is massive, but to start somewhere small. And they did the work associated with getting the right players in the room, trialling a, a range of crops, researching what the path to market looked like, understanding what the end price point would be, really kind of picking apart where the problems in the supply chain were and 
summarising all of that. And so that sounds like it's relatively uncomplicated, but actually it was a massive project. It sounds very complicated to me. I'm really interested in who are the funders. What what kind of what kind of money are we talking about and who are these funders and what motivates them? So at this point we're still just working with philanthropic donors and so that's everything from $15,000 to $500,000 and what motivates them is that they have joined the dots. They have understood the value that a change in agricultural practice can bring to our ability to arrest some of the reality of what we're facing. And they know that when they take a whole systems approach and that we stop looking at it in a reductionist way and that when we stop looking at it in a way that requires impact measurement in the form of numbers and relies on impact measurement in the form of intuitive understanding and and visibly changed systems that they're putting their money in a place that genuinely brings the change that we need to see. Mm. So they're generally women, Mm. if I'm going to make mass generalisations. In fact, I I could say that 90% of them are women. Wow, that's interesting. Generally the younger, Mm. so the vast majority of those sitting around our funders table would be 50 and under or even 40 and under. Generally, they've done a huge amount of thinking in terms of what their role is to bring change and they don't just want to hand money to something and hope like hell it makes a difference. They actually want to understand what impact it will. We we have just undertaken a project where we've connected a couple of key investors and that's not philanthropic funders that's investors with the Massey property so Charles Massey who wrote Call of the Reed Warbler his property Seven Park in just out of Cooma on the Monero High Plains they were in a position where they were eager to repurchase part of the property that was sold off during the drought and they didn't quite know what that would look like until they had a fairly off-the-cuff informal conversation with a couple of these funders who said, actually, we need to use this as an example and we need to see whether or not we can create an impact fund to genuinely change the paradigm of financial investment. And so, yes, it will be a debt model, but the whole deal was done without a single single signature on a contract or a piece of paper. It was done based on trust based on the relationship, pre-existing relationships that were in place and, you know, is looking at returns that are significantly lower than if you were looking at a venture capital return and are significantly slower and more patient than even the most generous impact investment. So it's being devised as an impact investment model. It's... A really key example of what happens when you put relationship into the equation. One of the terms that you've mentioned, Jade, is regen or regenerative agriculture. Can you explain to our listeners what that is exactly? Yeah, I mean, it's life. It's 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 outside of the degenerative approach that the vast majority of our human existence operates in now, certainly in the Western world. It's significantly beyond sustainable because sustainable would leave us exactly where we're at right now. And it's 
to regenerate is to look at every living ecosystem and the web that it sits within, not in a reductionist way and outside of sort of the capitalist paradigm and realise that growth doesn't need to be endless and that life has the ability to be reinserted into pretty well every decision that we make because at the end of every decision is a human or an animal or a culture or an ecosystem that could have life reinserted back into it based on how we make our decisions. And so I I guess it's as simple as saying we remove the extraction from the equation and we consider what it looks like when we put life back into the answer to every question. Can you tell me what that looks like on a general data? I mean, in your own farming, you have an orchard. How do you regeneratively farm your orchard in a practical sense? What does that mean? We mirror what the natural world does and we don't plant everything in long straight lines and we don't plant just one version of something and we sure as heck don't nuke anything. And so everything that's there is considered valuable because it's part of a natural ecosystem. So we have over 100 species of or varieties of apple. They sit across three or four different rootstocks. They are planted in contour, so they're on sort of big, slow, curving lines. Within each row, we have interplantings, and within the interplantings, we then have inter-row crops as well so that there's naturally or intentional wild areas. It does not look anything like what people would imagine a, a commodity orchard to look like. It is not neat and straight. It is wild and vibrant. If we have a problem with things like codling moth, for example, rather than killing the codling moth or using a broad spectrum insecticide, we actually don't intend to kill anything. We add life instead and we let the ecosystem sort itself out. So we add a product called Grandex, which is a a codling moth virus or a virus that has evolved in line with the codling moth. And so it's quite different. So we managed another farm around the corner for a couple of years and he wasn't on the same page with our growing practices at all. It doesn't mean that we're lazy. In fact, quite the opposite. We monitor codling moth traps with codling moth traps and we monitor their larvae and we spray this life virus. We add a virus rather than killing. We spray that at really intentional times and sometimes that means we're doing a four o'clock in the morning spray because it's all about monitoring the, the weather but so I guess it looks quite different we don't uh, we you do a whole lot of sprues and we do a whole lot of biological tea and you know we've got a lot of locals who've been driving past for the last decade with their arms crossed staring over their steering wheel wondering what the hell we're doing but we're just beginning to get phone calls from a lot of them to say we can't overcome a particular problem and we notice that you don't have that problem on your farm can we have a conversation about it that's not an uncommon thing anymore and it was for the first 10 years we were the out that had no idea and <laughs> you know now that we're on the ground and now that we're starting to sort of prove that it is is possible you know even a short supply chain we we sell all our product as you pick so we meet every person that eats the food that they pick from our property and we can answer all of the questions transparently and openly as to how we farm and why we farm this way and it means that the connection to the person that's eating 
the apple that might be dinted because of a hailstorm or a bit rusty because of a late frost or a bit undersized because we just didn't get to the fertigation of a compost spray or a um, or a tea you know they understand and they get it and so it means that our waste is minimized it means that we've also got methods in place that mean if we do happen to have a, a glut of something then we put it to good use and we we use it for other components of the farm so we have a massive mulch system so that they are really sort of tangible practical farming yeah. explanations as to what a regenerative farm looks like but if you were talking to a meat producer, a grazier, or if you were talking to a grain producer, or if you were talking to you know a poultry farmer, they would give you completely different examples. Yeah, and that I guess is why regenerative farming has been really hard to provide a black and white description of because it's different for every climate, different for every production approach, different for every sector. And so that's really, really difficult to then mm. communicate to consumers. And there's also this... Um, transition chasm where people are you know they get their head into the right frame of mind and they are operating in the paradigm of a regenerative way of existence but the farm that they're managing might not yet be ecologically ready to move away from its inputted existence to its regenerative existence which means they're in transition mm. and so it's really not black and white at all and it's really hard to con to communicate that to consumers in a way that makes easy sense yeah so i mean we can't all go to farms and and pick our own food from you know no nope. so what can we as consumers do to support this they can walk the talk so there is this massive say do gap between people's ideology and what they actually do when they get to the supermarket they can, if they are financially able, find a way to support farmers who are doing this and bringing it to them through community-supported agricultural box schemes or farmers markets or local food co-ops. All of those things are really accessible and easy to do even if you're in Melbourne. Things like joining a local community garden, teach our kids to eat seasonally, eat as local as possible, eat unpackaged wherever possible and find ways not to waste food. So there's a whole stack of little things, some that are expensive, some that aren't expensive, some that are inconvenient, some that aren't inconvenient, and it'll be different for absolutely everybody depending on who you are and how much time you've got, how much money you've got, what suburb you live in, how many kids you've got. You know, it's completely dependent on who you are. But I would say do one thing and stick to it until it becomes part of your rhythm and your your daily routine and then build one more thing. It might be that you grow a pot of mint on your bench and you use that to make a three o'clock cup of tea. It might be that you make your own bread. It might be that you sprout your own seeds. It might be that you grow tomatoes in a pot on your balcony and you swap them with your neighbour who's growing peas or beans. Whatever it is, reconnect with your food do it in a way that feels joyful and celebratory because otherwise it's quite overwhelming and continue to scratch the surface on educating yourself on understanding where your food comes from and who grew it. Well, Jade, speaking of scratching the surface, I feel like that's all we've managed to do today with what is a very complex subject, but it's been inspiring talking to you and I feel like I've learned heaps. 
Thank you. You've asked a whole lot of questions that I don't often get asked, so that's been great to stretch my brain. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. Please make sure to check out the Extra Virgin webpage at www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com where I'll put links to the Sustainable Table as well as to Jade's podcast, Future Steading, and to her book of the same name. So, listeners, thank you, as always, for keeping me company. And until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad-free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com.